morning. I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be with you all this morning. I uh, just want to say a quick thanks, especially to Jen Oquist. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I'm really glad to be here. Uh, again, my name's Jordan. My last name's pronounced Yo, um, but I'm a, <laughs> it was a good try. Many people, so no, no problem. Uh, I'm also a recent graduate of Gordon-Conwell down in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, and uh, where I also serve on staff. So our scripture reading today is going to be from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. So I invite you to turn there if you have your Bible with you, or you can use the insert that's in your bulletin. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. So let me read these verses as we begin. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. Now, the passage which I've just read comes from the book of Acts, and it's meant a great deal to me since I was a teenager. And perhaps you have certain passages similarly uh, where God has brought them to mind or Um, and they've sustained you in difficult times, or God has used them to teach you something, and you can remember that moment. Um, You know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, one of the great joys of being a Christian and reading scripture is that often God in his good providence will lead us to passages of the Bible exactly when we need them. Um, I feel like this happens a lot with the Psalms or maybe parts of uh, the life of Jesus where we come across episodes and they seem to speak to us and encourage us in our daily situations. Or sometimes we might even love a passage of scripture for years even, and then one day we'll read it and we'll see that God has taught us something new that we've never seen before, even though we've been reading that passage for a long time. And this passage that we just read is one of those for me. I can specifically remember reading it in high school and God using it to teach me a lot of things. And I think in particular, God has used this passage to teach me a lot about how to pray, how to adore God for who he is and how to pray scripture back to him, how to stand on the promises of his word in challenging times. And while I think that's helpful and we'll certainly touch on prayer as we look at this passage, I think we miss something if we just see this passage as a how-to on prayer. Instead, this passage teaches us quite a lot about the relationship that the church has with God and how Christians respond in difficult and challenging circumstances. Just to set the scene for where we are in the book of Acts, uh, at the beginning of the book, we, if you remember, Christ ascends to heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father. And as he promised, the Holy Spirit comes, the day of Pentecost arrives, and it puts on full display God's saving power for the nations. 
3,000 people respond in one day to the call of God and to Peter's sermon to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We also see in Acts chapter 2 the faithfulness of the local church as church members share their belongings and devote themselves to the gospel. We read in Acts chapter 2 verse 47 that not just 3,000 people come to Christ, but day by day the Lord adds to the number who are being saved. And in chapter 3, just as miracles accompanied the ministry of Jesus, a lame man is healed from birth during the preaching of Peter and John. But a crucial shift happens in that just as Jesus provoked opposition and condemnation from the religious leaders, so Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come upon Peter and John greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, after arresting Peter and John and seeing their boldness, recognizing that they had been with Jesus, Peter and John are eventually set free, but they're specifically told not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So that brings us to our passage where it's the first indication of opposition or persecution that the church faces. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, if you've read it before, you know that greater opposition is going to come beyond mere threats. We're going to have the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, in just a few chapters. There's going to be killings of Christians by the sword. There's going to be divisions and arguments that threaten the church. There's going to be Paul's eventual journey to Rome where he's warned by the Holy Spirit that he's going to be bound. And it's all a fulfillment of Jesus's words in John chapter 15, before he goes to Gethsemane and eventually his crucifixion, that his disciples are going to have tribulation in this world and the world would hate them just as it hated him. So how does the early church, after experiencing the beginning of persecution, which is going to become a constant really for the rest of church history, how does the church respond when it experiences the fulfillment of what Christ has said? What's the posture that it takes in persecution? And what does it cling to when earthly comforts and the growth that it was experiencing starts to slip away? Well, I want us to look today at three truths that I think this prayer teaches us about God and what we as Christians can cling to when the going gets tough. First, God reigns. Second, God acts. And third, God fills. God reigns, God acts, and God fills. So first, God reigns. Let's look again at verse 24 and how the believers open their prayer. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Even before getting to their requests, the disciples are confessing their utter dependence and fealty to God. They've just heard the news of opposition and warning from those with power to throw them in prison and change their life circumstances. That's the it in this verse when they heard it. It's the news of persecution that if they continue down the path of preaching the gospel, they're going to be facing trouble. And they respond by invoking whom they know is truly in charge. Now that word here, sovereign, sovereign Lord, it's communicating that God rules all that he owns all, that he made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything in them, all we see around us. Our world belongs to God, and we do as well. It's remarkable to think that the same God who made all things knows each of us intimately. 
you know, when we look at nature, especially in this time of year, with the beauty that the winter season in New England brings, we can be reminded both of our smallness, but also God's majesty. You can think about the words of David in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Also, David says in Psalm 19, that great psalm that extols God as creator and also as lawgiver, that the heavens are pouring out speech and the nights are revealing knowledge of God's glory, that there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. There's no place where we might flee from the testimony of God's reign and his goodness because it's being testified by creation all around us. But Christians aren't just reminded that God reigns by looking at the testimony of the natural world and creation. We're also reminded of this through God's word. As we learn in Romans 1, the testimony of creation is enough to convey knowledge that there is a God, but it's through the scriptures that we learn who this God is and what he requires of creation. The disciples are reminded that God reigns in this passage through quoting a passage from the Old Testament. Those words that they quote from David are from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is, in a way, if you've read that passage before, and as you can see here, it's really a tale of two rulers. The true ruler and the rulers of the world set against him. It's showing how foolish any opposition to the advancement of God's kingdom really is. So verse 4 from Psalm 2 says that God sits in heaven and laughs at the scheming and the folly of the rulers of the world and their plots against him. And it's a call to wisdom and a warning that God will not leave unpunished the rulers of the world who turn against him. And in a time when earthly rulers have begun to show opposition to the message of Jesus Christ, the disciples don't respond by complaining. They don't long for things to return to a sense of normalcy. Instead, they pray Psalm 2 back to God, who inspired King David to write those words long ago. They remember that opposition by, to God by earthly rulers is something scripture talks about. In short, they remember that God reigns. Likewise, in the prayer, they specifically mention in verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed, it specifically can be translated as Christ. Through their prayer to the Lord, the disciples are declaring that Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in their day. Just as David had mentioned in the Holy Spirit that earthly rulers would be against the Lord and against his Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, who are two rulers with very competing interests and competing kingdoms, are brought together in their shared opposition to the Lord. Now, while Herod and Pilate are certainly enemies of the Lord and working to build their own kingdoms, the disciples also make a somewhat surprising claim in verse 28. These rulers, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, are doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The disciples are taking comfort that this opposition is not only known and seen by the Lord, who's the God of seeing, but they're going so far as to say that it's actually a part of his mysterious plan that's being worked out. And I think that's important for us to see. The fact that God reigns doesn't mean that his people will be exempt from hard things. Far from it, because the scripture is filled with stories of the hardships of God's people. 
We can even remember Jesus specifically saying in John chapter 16 that in the world we're going to have tribulation. Or you can even think back to the the first calling of God to, to Abram in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will show you. It's a a call to walk by faith. Abram doesn't know exactly where he's going, but he's being called by God to leave and to trust that he's in the hands of someone who's holding him. Now, I have a, a hard time imagining a better witness to Christ or an encouragement uh, than watching someone suffer well. And perhaps you've seen it. Um, perhaps you've watched someone battle cancer and yet they they keep their eyes on Christ. Maybe you've lost a loved one, um, or even a child, or you've been in the midst of horrific grief, and you've seen how, uh, or you've been around someone who's experienced those things, and they can radiate this kind of beauty that Jesus can only bring um, from trusting in him in the midst of horrible and hard circumstances. And I, I think about in particular, there's one older woman in my life who probably along with my mother and my sister and perhaps a a Bible teacher named Elizabeth Elliot, who's one of my spiritual role models. And she's someone I look up to. She's the wife of my former pastor and all of her life, she's had a myriad of health problems. She constantly seems to be dealing with something difficult uh, that's causing her daily pain. And I still remember one time in our church after the service, she was talking with a bunch of our church members and she was talking about prayer and suffering And she said, sometimes in our lives, there really is no prayer left to pray with God, except the words that Jacob spoke to the angel in Genesis 32 after wrestling all night. Maybe you remember that passage where Jacob is walking through the wilderness and he comes upon a stranger and they wrestle all night. And at daybreak, the angels, uh, the stranger who we later find out is an angel says, let me go. It's dawn." And Jacob's response is, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, we're not wrestling with angels and we're not in the same context necessarily that Jacob's in, but sometimes with prayer, words fail us. And sometimes even the plea for God to not let us go until he blesses us. But because God reigns, we know that he will never fail us. And so when our lives are comfortable or when they're uncomfortable, God reigns when it feels like we have everything together, or when it feels like we're falling apart, God reigns. When it feels like we're supported or when we're forsaken, God reigns. The one who created all things, the one who confounds the plans of the wicked, who seek to oppose them and uses them for his namesake, the one who laughs at the plans of the wicked, this God reigns. But clearly we're not meant to simply sit back because we know God is in control and that he reigns and that he has everything under control. So we don't have to ask for anything. No, God doesn't just reign, but scripture also testifies that God acts. Verses 29 and 30 of our passage today present the requests of the disciples to the Lord. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, in this part of the prayer, we see a direct petition for God to work and for God to intervene in the midst of troubles. The apostles are pleading for God to look, to grant boldness, and to stretch out his hand. 
The first thing to know is that the disciples aren't viewing God as some kind of dispassionate observer. Yes, he reigns over all the world. Yes, he's invisible. Yes, he dwells in unapproachable light, and he knitted the very stars together. But he's also not so removed that he's also not intimately concerned with his people. He did not simply step back from the world after he created it to watch us do the best with what we can. That would be deism. No, the the God of the Bible delights when his children come to him and present their requests. And it's very interesting that in their requests, the disciples don't mention their personal safety at all. It seems to be completely absent. They don't pray, Lord, keep us safe from those who do us harm. Now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong for us to pray for safety. You can think about Peter when he's walking on the water in Matthew 14. Jesus is walking across the water and Peter says, Lord, if that's you, come out, call me out to you. And he starts walking. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he starts to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And I think it's it's absolutely right for us to cry out, save me when we need saving and when we need to express our, our utter dependence on God, if not for his righteous right hand to hold us up. But at the same time here, personal safety doesn't seem to be a concern of the disciples. Their concern is that God would clearly respond to the apparent threats that are being brought to the spread of the gospel, and that the disciples would continue to preach the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection with boldness. Now, that word boldness, it can also mean speaking clearly so that the speaker is not misunderstood or hidden in the meaning of their words. The disciples are asking that God would remove any confusion from the people's misunderstanding them. So you can think about the the parables that Jesus used to teach about the kingdom of God and the gospels. The parables concealed truth from many, but they also revealed truth to those whom God had chosen to reveal it to. But this seems to be a bit of a different circumstance where the disciples are asking that God's message would be crystal clear to all peoples. Yes, the threats are causing and will cause problems for their physical circumstances. In just the next chapter, the apostles are going to be beaten for speaking in the name of Jesus, and Stephen will be stoned after that. But the main concern for the disciples is that God would act so that his good purpose and his good plan would continue to bring about his saving work amongst a people in need of good news. Therefore, they pray also that God would perform signs and wonders through the name of his holy servant, Jesus. Now, if you think back to the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, his ministry was accompanied by miracles, by miraculous deeds, by signs and wonders. So basically, what the disciples are asking for is that the same power the same witness, the same confirmation that accompanied Christ's ministry and helped show others that he came from God would be with them. Now, Christians can debate and disagree over whether signs and wonders that we see in the New Testament can happen today, but what we know for certain is that nothing can be added or taken away from Scripture. We also know that we can commune with God in prayer and that he delights when his children come to him. We ask for things in faith, knowing that God can intervene in our situation, that he will be faithful to answer our prayers for his name's sake. We also trust that God, the one who is active, also is worthy of our trust no matter what happens. 
Now, I'm not sure about you, but I, I don't often remember illustrations or stories that I hear in sermons, but there's one illustration that I remember hearing that has always stuck with me. And I think it's because I had heard the story before I, I heard the preacher use it in the sermon. And so it's kind of solidified it in my brain. But I, it's also like the encouragement from my pastor's wife earlier. It's given me a lot of encouragement um, and vocabulary to pray even when I don't know what to say. Some of you may be familiar with, there's a, a Christian pastor, his name is Tony Evans. He's had a ministry for a very long time in Texas, and his wife uh, passed away back in 2020, his wife Lois, and her uh, their son, Jonathan Evans, he eulogized his mother at her funeral, and the eulogy went viral on the internet, so perhaps you've seen it, but Jonathan got up and was speaking about the prayers that he had prayed for his mom in her final days and his wrestling with the Lord over watching his mother prepare to die. And he then spoke about words of comfort that God revealed to him in his prayers. And I just want to share these with you. I think it's a beautiful witness displaying the hope that Christians have. He said, there were always only two answers to my prayers. Either she, his mother was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. That's the per that beautiful witness of being able to rest content in the arms of Jesus, knowing that whatever happens, we're going to either experience that healing here in this life, temporary but we're also going to experience that healing after we die and see Jesus face to face. We're going to be healed or we're going to be healed. Jesus is going to bring healing in this life, or he's going to bring healing when we see him face to face. Either way, God acts and we don't have to be afraid anymore. We're safe. We can give our lives away for Christ's purpose, knowing that he will be faithful to fulfill it. Now let's move to our final point. We've talked about how this prayer teaches us that God reigns and also that God acts. But how does God equip us to live into these beautiful truths and walk forward in faith towards our heavenly home? Well, the last part is that God fills. The last verse in our passage records the results of the apostles' prayer. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, in this situation, the apostles are granted assurance immediately that God has heard their prayer as their surroundings visibly vibrate. And that same word shaken, it's going to be applied later in the book of Acts to the, to the foundations of a jail in Philippi. When the Spirit of God causes the doors of the jail to open miraculously. And if you remember, it causes, it brings about the conversion of the Philippian jailer and eventually his whole family. Now, likewise, Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us that the Holy Spirit fills the believers and results in them faithfully continuing to proclaim the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These three signs, the shaking, the filling, and the proclaiming, all confirm God's presence with them. God is demonstrating, just as they've asked, that he's seen the threats, He stretched out his hand while performing signs and wonders. Now, I want to focus specifically on the Holy Spirit and what being filled with the Holy Spirit means. 
The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes upon the disciples at Pentecost and marks the disciples as Christ's own. Back in Acts chapter 2, the arrival of the Holy Spirit brings about almost a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember that episode in the book of Genesis where the people are building a great tower, um, thinking that they will be like God, and God comes down and confuses their languages so that they have to stop building the tower? Well, instead, during Pentecost, people all speak the different languages of the world, and it shows God's heart for the nations that the gospel is now not bringing confusion, but going out to bring the uh, the gospel uh, and clarity to the peoples. Now, we also learn of the Holy Spirit coming upon new believers and sealing the finished work that Christ accompanied on the cross and through his resurrection. Or you can think about in Romans chapter 8, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us and will give life to our mortal bodies. You just repeat that. I mean, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ to life, conquering death and hell, that same spirit now lives in us. The Holy Spirit also equips us to live lives of faithfulness to God. He enables us to obey his commands, which are not burdensome. He brings forth fruits in our lives as we walk with Christ. Consider the fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, who best demonstrates love? Who best demonstrates joy? Who best demonstrates peace, patience? Well, it's Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work in us conforms us into the image of Christ. And it's a process that we'll be engaged with the rest of our lives. We will never get to a point where we've arrived with holiness. It's something God will always be doing in our hearts as we wrestle to root out sin as we repent, and as we follow after Jesus. But as we submit our lives to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and as he fills us through showing the beauty of Jesus to our hearts, as he reveals the riches of his word, as we read it, as we fellowship together as a church, as we pray for God's will to be done in our lives, God continues to work out his good will in our lives and prepares us to see his face on that glorious day where we'll either meet the Lord after death or when he returns. So we've seen how this prayer in Acts chapter 4 teaches the church that God reigns, that God acts, God fills, which are truths that can sustain us in times of both opposition and in times of difficulty. But how can this be? How can we really know that this is the case. Well, we can know that God reigns because Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We can trust that God reigns because this same God, to save his people, gave up his heavenly splendor to dwell among us, and we have seen his glory. We can know that God acts because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Because God acts and has himself looked upon our sinful state and is not ashamed to call us his own, we can trust that he hears our prayers and delights to continue his saving and healing work. 
And we can know that God fills because Jesus being found in human form, he emptied himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself of his heavenly glory that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit and declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. May the Lord Jesus continue to uphold, strengthen, sanctify each of us, come what may, as we journey towards the promise of eternity with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. And that because of your death and resurrection, you have been highly exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God, the father. We pray that that same spirit, that Holy spirit would encourage us today and each day as we learn to walk and move forward in our lives with you. We pray that we would continue to be encouraged to trust in you with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understandings, but in all our ways, may we acknowledge you because you, Lord Jesus, are the one who makes our path straight. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.